So Money episode 1057. Our Black Wealth series continues with Talit and Ty McNeely, founders of His and Her Money. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. According to a study that just came out from Northwestern University, uh, black families have one penny for every dollar that white families have as far as wealth goes. And so it's important for us to be examples not only of debt freedom, but wealth accumulation. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How are you? It's Wednesday, June 17th. Just celebrated my eight-year wedding anniversary yesterday. My husband and I got some dinner and ate it in our car overlooking the Manhattan skyline from our new neighborhood in New Jersey. It's how we do it in the pandemic. It's how we celebrate our love in the pandemic. Black Wealth Matters continues on So Money. And today, honored to bring on Talit and Ty McNeely. They are the founders of His and Her Money. They are financial educators on a mission to get individuals and couples on the same page financially and to experience the joys of financial freedom. Together, they are the authors of Money Talks, The Ultimate Couple's Guide to Communicating About Money, they're also hosts of the top-rated podcast, The His and Her Money Show, and creators of Power Couples University. Talent and Ty have been featured in numerous publications, including Black Enterprise, Business Insider, MSN, and Fox News. Now, you just heard Talent sharing a recent study from Northwestern University, and he's right. Based on data from the Federal Reserve, on average, For every dollar of accumulated wealth that white families have, many black families have just one penny. How do statistics like these and their own personal stories encourage them to do the work that they do? The McNeely's paid off their mortgage in 25 years, everybody. So I had to ask how and why they made this a priority. As parents, I was also curious to ask the couple what sorts of conversations they're having with their three kids about the intersection of money and race. I think you'll be surprised to hear what they had to say. And should personal finance get political? What does that even mean? Here's my conversation with the lovely Talit and Ty McNeely. Talit and Ty McNeely, welcome to So Money, my friends. How are you doing? We are great. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, we're glad to be here. His and her money. Good on you for trademarking that. Yes, thank that is, you. That is like masterclass. Like to get that, that's huge. And your, can I call it empire, your personal finance ecosystem that you've created, you've grown so quickly. I mean, last time we spoke was, a, I feel like it was like a few years ago at FinCon. You just started to kind of build momentum. And now you've got hisandhermoney.com, which is this incredible website, podcast, videos, private community programs. You're everywhere, speaking, television. First question, what was a light bulb moment for this? I know that you've had your personal successes with money, but you know, taking that and saying like, okay, well, let's, let's now be teachers is a whole different right, project right. shift. So when was that? Whose idea was that? Who's going to take credit for that? 
I think we both will take credit. It actually was birthed from our own real life experience. Um, his or her money, we're only, what, almost six years old. But our personal experience um, was that of financial infidelity prior to getting married. And then when we got married, we had to try to figure out this whole thing, marriage and money. And so we would have people, you know, approach us and say, hey, Ty and Tyler, can you all sit down? Can you talk to us, go over our finances? And then we thought about it like, hey, if we're, you know, um, helping people on our couches here at home, why why not help the world as well and just take it online? Mm -hmm. um, we didn't imagine it to be this large. And honestly, we feel like uh, we're only scratching the surface. Um, and so, yeah, we just hit we hit go and went online. We <laughs> put out our website first and then we put out our podcast and YouTube. I want to say it was within the same month. Wow. That we launched yeah, our pretty, platform. Pretty close. And so uh, we've been rocking and rolling ever since. We just came on the scene just really trying to help people the best way that we can. We want to use the, the good parts, the painful parts of our story to help people kind of shorten their learning curves and get to the level of success that they had desires to get to from their from a financial standpoint, but weren't sure how to get there. What do you think is your special sauce? There's a lot of faces and voices in this space. And I think the more the merrier, we need as much diversity as possible within the personal finance space. Because at the end of the day, right, it's not about always the the how, but it's the the who is telling me this. And mm -hmm. what is the story? Am I connecting with, these, with this person, this couple? When you arrived on the scene, you said six years ago, where was the world at? And where was, where was the audience at? And where do you feel like you really just like plugged in beautifully? Yeah, I would say our secret sauce has been getting couples on the same page financially, as well as with their life and their goals. Um, a lot of times in marriage, unfortunately, I mean, even though you're married, sometimes you're on two separate islands and kind of like just doing your own thing. And so when we came on the scene and even now to this very day, we're teaching couples how to become one in everything, their money, their goals, their life, parenting. And so that's really probably one of the most popular questions that we receive is how do I get my spouse on board? I think that for a lot of people, what we hear consistently is, I feel like I know you all. I feel like I can relate to you all. And so we work really hard to remain relatable. We don't try to preach down to you. We try to walk right next to you on the journey and point things out along the way that maybe spark some inspiration in you to create a legacy for your family. So I think we are really good at making what others make complicated, simplify. What others make seem unattainable, attainable. And we're doing it in a way that um, we're just a couple next door. And you're the masters of real estate. I think people also love to learn about building wealth through real estate. And the two of you have done such exceptional work in that space. How you um, paid off a 30-year mortgage and five years. The way that we actually have built our wealth and we're continuing to build our wealth is that through debt freedom and we also paid off our mortgage. Uh, we paid off $330,000 in five years and this was done on one income at the time. And so, um, yeah, we just use our platform to show pretty much how various couples and individuals are building wealth in their own way. So is that of real estate, that of investing and that of also um, debt freedom? Yeah. So for us, it's been a journey of we've dabbled in investment real estate. Um, we didn't have the best uh, time with it. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll be going back at it soon. But what it taught us to do was to really focus on our four walls. And so we really got serious about really controlling the elements of our financial journey that we could control. So we looked at our spending, we looked at our investment strategy, we looked at our credit, we looked at our 
mortgage, our principal mortgage. It wasn't a whole lot of people back then talking about, hey, let's pay off our house. And what we did was we took everybody on a journey with us, a five year journey. We did this whole thing in five years and we took our audience with us along the way to include that day where we paid off the house. We walked into the bank five years to the date from the day that we closed on the house. We got dressed up. We got our kids dressed up. We walked <laughs> in the bank. We went live for everybody to watch. Oh, um, Debt free house. I see that. I'm seeing the image on your website. We crushed our mortgage in five years. Your kids are beautiful. Oh, thank you. Why, yes. why, have, why have the goal to pay off your mortgage in five years? I think for us, um, we didn't want to owe anybody anything. We had spent a number of years um, in our marriage. We got consumer debt free within the first year of our marriage. And we kind of just stayed right there with it because quite frankly, it was normalized. The 30 year, 15 years to pay off a house was the norm. And so that's kind of, you know, you just kind of went with the flow. And then one day um, we just decided that's we don't want to be normal. We want to do something that a lot of people aren't doing and we want to do it publicly Mm -hmm. so that others can know. Because if you have ownership of everything, like think like for everybody that's listening, just take a moment and just think about because this is what we used to do. Even before we got to the house when we were just doing the consumer debt, we took the time to just the brain space to say, what would my life look like if I wasn't sending out these monthly debt payments every month? Like, what would that feel like? And we use that same type of mental strategy when it comes to the house. Like, wait a minute, what if what if we didn't have a mortgage? What if we didn't have to send this check to the lender every single month? Like, what would life look like? And so we decided to find out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we told ourselves that we, because we made this decision, Farnoosh, when we bought the home. When we bought the home, mm-hmm. we said that we are never going to make not one minimum monthly payment on this house. We said, we're going to pay this house off in five years. Now, mind you, when we said it, if you just looked at our circumstances, it didn't make sense. Right. One income stream. No, we had one income stream. We didn't have uh, a big income stream at that. And we were just really, we were walking by faith. And we said, Mm -hmm. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to do this. And the only thing the only move that we could make for those who are looking at their circumstances like, I, you know, I, I can't do that right now. But after we looked at our numbers, the only thing that we could muster up was an additional $20 principal payment on top of our minimum pay. That's the only thing we could commit to in that moment. But that small commitment was in alignment with the goal that we set. We said that we are never going to make one monthly minimum payment. And we never did. Five years later, we walked into the bank. And we closed and we and we became actual owners of our home, not just homeowners. Yeah. Now, some of you guys, you all can't see us because uh, this is actually recorded uh, via audio and not a video. Um, but we are uh, two African-American. Uh, we're an African-American couple. And when we made the decision to do this, unfortunately, there was not a lot of representation out there. Although um, African-American families were paying off their homes and mortgages, it was not necessarily um, a lot of representation visibly. And so not only did we know that we wanted to do this for our children and also change our legacy, but we also wanted to do this for our culture. Um, It was important to us that we set the example um, for others to see that, hey, there's somebody that looks just like me mm-hmm. or my husband, and we can do this as well. And we can't tell you the numerous amounts of emails and comments that we received. Thank you all for representing um, us. And thank you for showing me that I can do this as well. 
Well, I'm glad we you brought that up. Representation is so important when you grow up, not just being told you can do it, but actually seeing someone who looks like you who is doing it. That's a lot more uh, realistic yeah. and motivational. Along those lines, what are, what are some other examples and other types of modeling that you think are imperative for your community to witness because maybe they didn't get that growing up and because of that they feel like they either can't do it or the system is is set up for failure um well one one of the uh, glaring uh, unfortunately uh stats is that uh the wealth gap between african-american households and caucasian households what you just read something today was it one yeah penny? so according to a study that just came out from northwestern university uh black families have one penny for every dollar that white families have as far as wealth goes. And so it's important for us to be examples not only of debt freedom, but wealth accumulation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the narrative that's being destroyed by shows like this one and shows like ours is that wealth is absolutely attainable. There are some things that you can do that are in your Um, level of acumen that you can do to build wealth, not only for yourself, but that you can be an example to your kids to do the same. For us, one of the big tenets of the work that we do is we don't just want to create a strong legacy for the McNeely household, but we want to create strong legacies in every household that follows, subscribes to his and her money and the various platforms. Our goal is to bring about generational change one household at a time. And so when we talk about the ways that we invest in the stock market, when we talk about the ways that we are going to invest in entrepreneurship and invest in real estate, we're doing it in a way so that you can understand, find yourself in it, find your place in that narrative and create, remix it to fit your family and your family's goals so that now not just the McNeely household is changing, but the Johnson household, the Tarabi household, the the Black household, the the Martin household, whoever, whatever household is listening, they're being inspired to do something different because you you kind of alluded to it earlier. You said about systems being set up to fail, unfortunately, and and it. The truth is that the system is set up for a lot of us to fail. Um, But fortunately, there are some really good conversations happening as we speak to try to change the narrative. But the systems have been there for a very long time. One of the big things, and you mentioned the power of real estate, is that that was one of the biggest drivers in this study that I just mentioned as to the disparity in the gap between races. You got to understand, you got to go way back to World War II. When those soldiers came home from fighting, they were promised certain things, one of which was the Montgomery GI Bill that would be a tool for them to become homeowners. And historically and factually speaking, the white soldiers that came home received those grants, received those homes, and the African-Americans, the black soldiers that came back were denied. Not only that, but there was rhetoric created by insurance companies back then that made it seem like the African-American race from a physiological standpoint was inferior and undeserving of being insured. And so a lot of African-Americans could not get life insurance. And if they did, they were charged astronomical premiums for very menial um, outputs. And so you have two of the biggest drivers of wealth of that generation 
equity in homes and life insurance policies that African-Americans were blocked out of having. And if you listen to us, we talk a lot about home ownership and we talk a lot about the importance of life insurance because those are things that are attainable and those are things that were withheld from us for so many generations and it's something that is a big part of what you can do at your level to build wealth. So those are the types of conversations and examples that we're trying to leave. You both are so transparent about how you've built wealth and how you've paid down debt. What are some systemic roadblocks that you jumped over or had to struggle against as you were establishing wealth? Well, number one was literacy. I just mm-hmm. just didn't know, uh, di- didn't have the the access to just knowledge around it. Um, In the African-American context, um, we are, for better or for worse, when you're a child, you, you, there are phrases out there like a child needs to stay in a child's place. And so parents don't necessarily have quote unquote adult conversations with their children uh, for better or for worse. So a lot of times we showed up into adulthood and we were kind of expected to figure this money thing out because like you mentioned, the school system is not teaching us anything about money. And for most of us, our parents weren't sitting us down saying, this is how you invest. This is why you should stay out of debt. This is how you keep your credit clean. This is how you uh, become a homeowner. We didn't have those conversations. So we just became 22 year old college graduates with jobs and incomes. And we were just told go. And so for us, the biggest, one of the biggest ones was to figure out how does money work? What is investing? What are the different ways? Because there's lots of different ways to invest. But if you don't find the best style that fits you and your goals, then you can really, really mess it up. Why is it important to stay away from debt? What's a payday loan? Why is that a bad thing? Um, Why do people uh, go and take student loans at higher rates than others? Why not just pay my way through school? You know, these are things that weren't taught to us directly. These were things that we had to figure out. My wife figured it out pretty quickly. It took me a little longer and uh, it kind of held us back a little bit. But that was the first obstacle was to figure out exactly how the money game works, because it's 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 rules to this. Farnoosh, as you know very well, there are rules to this game. And if you don't know the rules, you're going to end up losing and you don't you don't even know that you're in the game. Talit, I was watching your YouTube conversation with uh, Sam, Sam Shanes, and just having a really candid conversation. This was on June 4th, so um, earlier in uh, the month, about just all of the things and how you were feeling uh, in, in the aftermath of George, George Floyd's death. And you said you had to take a 36-hour break and unplug. Um, you'd reached a personal tipping point. What made it different this time? Because this wasn't obviously the first episode incident of a African-American individual being killed by a police officer. Yeah, I think it's just it was all the things. Um, not only is this not the first time I'm like a real avid student uh, historically of police brutality, racism and education, racism and economics, racism and housing. Um, I consume that type of content. I read the books. I study the studies about all it. But this time it was just a culmination of the world just seemed one big question mark with everything that's going on with COVID-19. And to be quite frank, when George Floyd, it was it was two people on the same day. It was George Floyd and Mr. Cooper out there where you're at in New York, who it could have went bad for, but fortunately it didn't. But he had the police called on him. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. And, that and was... a false accusation mm-hmm. on the same day. 
And 30 days before these situations, oh, uh, we were just mourning uh, um, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, where he was killed. And 30 days before that, we were mourning Breonna Taylor in Ohio, who was killed by the police. So it was a culmination of back-to-back situations. We had everything going on, big question marks in the world around the coronavirus, like what's happening with this? It, 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 it took on it. it grabbed our whole world and put a pause button on it. And then this was happening on the same day. And it was just my timeline was flooded with this information. The news on on TV was flooded with this information. And just for me, I just needed a break. I said, okay, mm-hmm. I want to process this, all this because here's what people that um, I know you have a very diverse audience. And so for people that are listening that are non-African-American one of the things that I shared on that video that you referred to was when we see these incidents, we live them. We feel them. We're not just viewing from a distance. We see ourselves in these situations. All of us have a story. I have been face down on the pavement with guns drawn by the police because I fit the description, not because I did anything, but because my friends and I were in a car in a neighborhood and we fit the description. So they pulled us over, searched the car, searched us, had us face down like we did something, but we didn't. I was a kid. I was a teenager, Fanoush. And I'm far from a teenager now, but I still remember it vividly. So when I see George with the face down on the pavement, I'm back to that 16 year old version of me that was face down in the pavement. And so we live it when we see it. We really feel it. And so that was um, the point that I just said, I need to take a time out. I knew I couldn't stay out of it because we are leaders um, in various spaces. um, And so our voice means something. But for about 36 hours, I just had to for mental health for to get my emotions regulated, to not spew from a place of emotional outrage to be able to speak intelligently, collectively, you know, we just had to take a break. And I, I was far from the, the only one. I had several people that I know felt the same way. Yeah. And I just want to correct that um, Armad was actually killed prior to Breonna Taylor. As parents, what are any conversations you may be having with your children, specifically conversations around race and money. Um, And this is a, this is actually a question I want to start asking everybody who comes on the show now, who is a parent. I don't think this is the only the the responsibility of black people to have this conversation with their kids. I think we all need to, if we're going to take the stance that we are anti-racist and not just inclusive, we can't just say to our kids, Oh, everybody's equal or everybody can, you know, has a, should have their fair share or fair chance, but that No, there are unfortunately some harsh realities about being a black person in this country as it pertains to trying to achieve wealth. And we need to talk about that. For you and your family, what are some conversations, if you've probably already had them, that you're having with your kids? Yeah, we have um, raw and open and honest conversations with our children. Um, As of the recent events that have been going around, um, in regards to George Floyd's death, we actually sat down at our dinner table and had a very in-depth conversation with our kids, so much to the point where we actually had to reenact what happened. And we did this for various reasons. Our oldest is 10. Our youngest is six. And we have one boy, two girls. And we actually had our son put his hands behind his back and we actually had him lay on the ground. And of course, I did not put my knee in his neck. But I asked him, could he, by him laying there with his arms back, can you try to get up? Can you get up? Can you defend yourself? He said, no, mom, I can't. I said, imagine if someone was on your neck 
two other people. One was on your torso. One was towards the legs. Could you get up even then? No, I can't. I said, what else do you think may happen? I can't breathe. And then we had our, our two little girls um, actually stand on the opposite side of the table. And um, we actually had them verbally say, what would you say if you were to see somebody like that on the ground, a black male on the ground, anybody for that matter. But in this case, we were um, explaining to them what happened with George Floyd, who was who was an, who was an African-American male. And they started screaming and yelling and saying, get off of him. He can't breathe. He can't breathe. And to see your children's eyes, um, to see that type of uh real life story. Like this is not something that they read in a book that was false. This is a real life um, enactment to see your children, to see this through their eyes was very heartbreaking um, to, to have to even have this conversation with them. Um, but we did that for numerous reasons to show them the reality of what's really happening and to also explain um, you're African-American, your dad is African-American and your mom is African-American. And the truth of the matter is there will be some times where you may be treated differently. Right. And so we also use that same conversation to teach them and show them how to still love others, even when they treat you wrong. So we're not telling our kids to be mean to others. We're not um, teaching them to be racist towards others. We're teaching them to love others and to pray for them. And then we also talk about the power um, of your dollar. And so we explain to our children, even when we paid off the mortgage, as my husband said, they went to the bank with us. They got to experience that with us. And we did that on purpose to show them, hey, if mom and dad can do it, they look like me. I can do it, too, if not better. And so we're having these conversations with them um, about how they need to be forward thinking, how we need to be talking about more investing. Even now, we're having conversations with them of building their own businesses. So we're asking them questions. What are some things or some interests that you have? Um, And so we're trying to teach them the power of wealth and even the more importance of it by being in a black household. Watch out world. What are your kids' names? (laughs) Our son, he's 10. He is Emmanuel. And then we have an eight-year-old daughter. Her name is Brinkley. And then a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Grace. Emmanuel, Brinkley, and Grace. Watch out world. They'll be taking over the business next year. That's right. We tell them that all the time. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of conversations happening right now within the personal finance space. I know that we 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 are all members of the FinCon community and there's been a lot of like soul searching and reckoning within that community in the last several weeks. And what is the sort of intersection of money and politics and money and race? And I'll just say, for example, I mentioned that I was contributing to the NAACP and the, you know, a Brooklyn bailout fund. And, and one person found that to be too political, like stay in your lane, Farnoosh. Don't, don't tell us these things because it sort of clouds the, the advice that is, should be just straightforward and not political. And I was like, that, how is that political? Right. What is your take on all of that and the role of politics within the personal finance expert advice community? What should it be? Well, the, the uncomfortable truth is that our personal finance structures and systems have been extremely racist at quite Mm -hmm. a few times. And even in present times, you got to understand that the people that you elect into these offices decide what schools get funded to what degree. That's personal finance, because if your school system doesn't get the funds, your home values go down. If your home values go down, your net worth goes down. It's all intertwined. We have to elect the right people to affect the right policies, because all these tough conversations that are happening in our world right now are policy related. Every day, there's 10 companies coming out with new policies around the way that they have been handling their business. And so it becomes political to the degree that 
these decisions are affecting our well-being financially. We're not here to tell you who to vote for, what candidate to support, but I think it is important to have conversations about systems that are outdated, that are systemically holding back a group of people. Because if you are a just a human, you know, this is a human rights issue. If you do any type of research around the term redlining, you'll see that black ghettos and white suburbs were not created by accident. They were government sanctioned structures <laughs> that were created and to some degree still happen. Now, they can't literally have red lines on maps like they literally used to, but there are still some systems in place to make sure that certain groups of people are kept apart. And that affects education. That affects my ability to build wealth for myself and my children. That affects me. That affects my ability to give my children good quality food because there's a such thing as food deserts in these black ghettos that were intentionally created. So it's all related to the degree that politics affects policies and these policies that are still outdated and still in place. Think about it, Pernice. There was just a story that um, 35 of our 50 states still have laws and policies in place that allow police officers to have a sexual relation with a detainee in 2020. 35 out of 50 states. So we can't ignore politics when policies like that and others are still being used to hold groups of people back. We have to talk about it because we should all want a better world. We should all want a level playing field because that's a human rights issue. It's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. And what drives politics? What drives policies? One, voting, but two, money. Yes. And I love the work that you're doing, going back to what you said earlier, as representatives of the black and African-American community to show that, you know, we're doing this. Here's how we did it. Here's our open book. And along the way, you know, blazing the trail for everybody else to to make their own financial narrative, a successful narrative and get richer. I was talking to a guest the other day about how a privatization of prisons. Okay. So he said that a lot of these prisons are dismantling. Why? Because, well, one, they're horribly run, but two, they're becoming expensive. And I said, well, thank God, mm -hmm. because if they were just horribly run, I don't know if that would have been enough to move mm -hmm. the needle. They need to also, it also needs to be too expensive. And so this country for all its capitalist benefits also, um, we've been unfortunately becoming rich, not at the expense of money, but at the expense of people too often, but putting more money in the right people's hands, hopefully that will uh, change policies and change yeah. politics. It's a big part of the of the equation. And Talat, I couldn't have said it better myself, what you just articulated about the role of politics in personal finance. Before we go, I want to give a big spotlight onto your YouTube channel. This is, as someone who is new to the space, I'm so impressed with the community that you've built there. So first, I just want to get everyone on there subscribing at um, His and Her Money 
on YouTube, but can you give me some tricks? <laughs> First are- off, thank you so much. Um, what we're doing today is the very same thing that we did almost six years ago was that every time we put out a video, we just want to, if we could help one person, then we've done our job. And so we give information freely on there. Um, because we know that not everyone can probably pay for the courses and uh, different resources and things like that. So we give, we consider it a ministry. And so, yeah, um, there are some people that love to learn via video. And so we're just there uh, sharing our wealth of knowledge. Yeah. So, I mean, the key to us, just one, being consistent, um, two, giving the content that people are looking for. People have questions. And so if you are the solution or the answer to the questions that they're asking, um, you'll be able to have growth there. Um, you want your titles to be uh, to the degree that because YouTube is a search engine, but above anything else, it is a search engine. It's where people go to find answers. And so you need to make sure your titles and your thumbnails and um, your description is speaking to the questions that they're asking and be consistent. Don't get so caught up in the numbers out the gate. Take the first year to completely ignore the numbers and just keep your foot on the gas. I'm going to provide value um, every single week to my audience because I know that I can help people with the things that I've learned along the way. So if you maintain that heart posture and we know you do have that heart posture for news, you're going to be just fine. All right. Uh, I like that. Give myself a year. Yeah. I think that's important just to, to just tweak and learn along the way. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real education for me and a very optimistic conversation. I think what you're doing is so important and vital and um, we look forward to following you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Thanks so much to the McNeelys for joining me. Check out their website, hisandhermoney.com. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com. You can grab the transcript, share the audio, and leave a question for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. I know I've been skipping these lately. I've been instead airing interviews with individuals for my Black Wealth Matters series, but I promise starting back in July, we are back to our regular programming and we will be back to answering your questions on Friday. And I've been keeping a log. So don't worry, I'm going to get to you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money.